0: In that theme, it's good to be with you this morning, and I hope that your hearts are ready for the Word. That's the whole point of musical worship, is just to get us to a point where we've confessed what we need to confess, and we've brought ourselves to the point where we can hear and and then obey. And That's all of us as we come in, isn't it? After a week's worth of whatever, you come in and you're, you're not ready, and then you begin to pray, and you begin to sing, and then you begin to, as you meditate on those words, just bring your hearts into conformity to... Where the lord would have us and he's quick to forgive as we bring those things and then uh, teach us from his word so i hope that's been your experience today it's our desire for that to happen if you have little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be in little in uh, age-appropriate church you can dismiss them at this time you're also welcome to keep them with you and they can sit in church we love children we have lots of them and we're grateful to to the lord for them so for the rest of you if you would take your copy of god's word turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 2, 2nd Corinthians chapter 2, God's plan for a healthy church, a continuing study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, forgiveness, the blessing of letting go. Let's read, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. I'm going to read from the New American Standard, that's what I teach from. Uh, there's nothing special about that. You read in whatever you're going to read and whatever you memorize. On a day-to-day basis, you read in that co- as a copy of that. If you need one, uh, please feel free to help yourself to the one that's in the seat in front of you or around you somewhere. We're going to pick up in verse five or we'll read through verse eleven. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree. In order not to say too much to all of you, verse six: sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Verse 7, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Verse 9, for to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Verse 10, but one whom... You forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So, beloved, what's the emphasis in those seven verses? Forgiveness. Seven verses five times, forgiveness. Forgiveness. C.S. Lewis has a few interesting things to say about forgiveness. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. He goes on to say, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that's left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made, seeing it in all its horror, its dirt, its meanness, and its malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it passage before us today and for the next several weeks as we'll just get our feet wet by way of introduction today picking up again lord willing on the 20th of may following next week's child dedication service Uh, this passage before us today has to do with forgiveness it it appears really to connect us to first corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 and following and an individual there it will remind us of the pain that sin inside the church inevitably brings it'll also call to our remembrance. The process the Lord has given to the church that's sometimes needed in order for repentance to be sought. And we'll look at those things and remind ourselves of what we looked at in 1 Corinthians 5. But the great joy of the passage is that it shows the ends of those things and the desired result. And it gives the church a chance to forgive. And it's going to reveal in the process of these seven verses the blessings of doing just that. And we're going to see some really marvelous things that we can hold on to as we think about forgiveness. But before we get to those benefits, I think we can see that really we dwell in a society that knows very little about forgiveness, obviously. And not only do they know very little about it, I would venture to say that they care very little about it. Our culture encourages us to be unforgiving, actually. I think it makes heroes out of those who are not willing to forgive, thinking of course of the many movie plots based on someone who will not forgive and then goes out and exacts their vengeance. Hollywood knows that the world will buy those tickets. We see it in the litigious attitude of many suing everybody for everything uh, through what seems to be an endless supply of lawyers on commercials who try for monetary reasons to make everyone else the reason for our difficulties and to make someone else at fault for our accidents and our inconveniences and then force them to compensate us for those troubles. Now, for a Christian, the failure to forgive is an act of disobedience, and I think we can just say that categorically. No matter what the issue is, the failure to forgive is unthinkable, and the main reason, of course, is that we have been forgiven. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, this is a passage as we've been going through with uh, our parents in in, uh, godly parenting class, this is a passage that we taught our boys early, and they would have to memorize it early and then of course as we would say what's Ephesians 4 32 they would sing song it back to us not really taking in the depth of the meaning we would have hoped that they would have taken in but it says be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving each other what's the reason beloved just as God in Christ has what forgiven you so let's read that again be kind to one another there's one thing that's doing acts of kindness to each other tender hearted that means not hard-hearted towards someone but instead willing to believe willing to embrace forgiving each other why because it's a good thing to do or because you know that's the moral thing to do or because that's what your teacher says to do or what your parents say to do or that's what's just in you know in society that's just good it's no just as as god in christ has forgiven you uh, these passages set the standard Colossians three twelve and 13 says so as those who have been chosen of God holy and beloved put on a heart of compassion so you've been chosen of God so and you're holy and you're beloved the Lord made you holy and he loves you and so then put on a heart of compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bearing with one another and forgiving each other well, you don't know what happened. Well, okay, whoever has a complaint against anyone. This kind of takes in a very broad path, doesn't it? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So there's, again, it's the standard. The, the, the passages set the standard, don't they? Um, how does the Lord forgive you? All day, every day, everything. Right? All day, every day, everything. Some days more than usual, perhaps at least from our perspective, maybe similar volume to the Lord. We just don't see it as often, and we, we camouflage it. Romans chapter 4, verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. As we talked about child-rearing this week, I reminded uh, our parents that when you spank and you correct and you get it all done and it cries out and, you, and you've done the lecturing and you've explained what happened and you've prayed, then you move on. And and tomorrow you don't say, well, remember, you got a spanking yesterday because why? The Lord doesn't remind us, does he? When we come to him for forgiveness and we receive it, we get it. And then we move on from there. And what does uh, Paul say? Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You know, And we've said this numerous times, but I think because we're in this section of scripture, which brings it up often, it's worthy of being repeated, you you never look more like the Lord as we saw than when you bless someone who's been unkind to you. As we saw, Paul was gonna go twice to the Corinthian church and be a blessing both times on the way and on the way back from Macedonia, even though they'd been so unkind. So you never look more like the Lord than when you're kind to someone and bless someone who's been unkind to you. Number two, you're never looking more like the Lord than when you're patient and long-suffering with someone. And you never look more like the Lord than here when you forgive. And in fact, it comes across a little more forceful in Matthew, Matthew 5, 7. It says, blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, for they shall what? Receive it. Blessed are the merciful because they'll receive it. Now it's a little more invested there, right? Because we, we count on the Lord to be forgiving for us all day, every day, everything, right? So if you give it, you'll get it. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 12, and forgive us our debt the disciples want to know how to pray. And so he tells them how to pray. And then he gets to this end and and he says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then verse 14 says, for you forgive others for their transgressions. Your heavenly father will also forgive you. Verse 15, but if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive you your transgressions. And this is not to say that a believer will lose justification and forgiveness from the guilt and the ultimate penalty of sin. We're not saying that. Uh, The passage deals with the washing that Jesus does of the daily defilement of the world. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's a continual washing and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not saying you're going to lose your salvation, your ultimate justification. It's dealing with the daily defilement of the world, and it's the idea of a washing just the feet and not the whole body, like we saw in John 13 when Peter said, well, if you're going to you won't, you're not going to wash my feet. Well, if you don't, I can't wash your feet, I have no part of you. Well, then wash my whole body. And what did Jesus say? Your whole body doesn't need to be washed, just your feet. Just the daily defilement of the world. You've already been washed, just your feet. That's the idea. And this is what Jesus says that the Lord will withhold if those who follow him don't forgive each other. So not only do you uh, not receive fellowship forgiveness when, if you won't give it, But as we've studied very recently, the Lord chastises those who are his and who disobey his commands. And so you find yourself not only just not receiving this fellowship forgiveness, you might find yourself suffering for wickedness sake. You might find yourself, uh, you know, taking the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner, which has to do with interpersonal relationships in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and be weak and sick and taken home, see. So there's a lot invested here. It's not just, oh, it's a nice idea. You know, we forgive because the Lord has forgiven us. When we understand the depth of our own forgiveness by the Lord, and we were reminded uh, of what we've been saved from, and then how the Lord deals with us on a daily basis, uh, that refreshment uh, in that understanding helps us to respond correctly to everyone else, because everybody thinks forgiveness is a great thing, as C.S. Lewis says, until they have something to forgive we see even more direct instruction out of James in James 2 verse 12. James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now the previous portion of that passage, and you can read this uh, at another time in your own time. Previous portion of the passage says, if you keep the whole law and yet stumble on one point, you're what? guilty of the whole thing. So it's talking about the law, trying to keep the law, which is not possible for people to do, which is why Jesus came. Okay. So if you're living by the law, understand you're not keeping it. Even if you, you keep everything, you violate one, you violated all of it. So remember, in other words, when James says, when you're judged by the law of liberty, don't act then like you don't mess up and need mercy yourself. So make sure you give it because judgment will be merciless to the one who shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thomas Adams in the 16th century preacher wrote this. He said, he who demands mercy yet shows none ruins the bridge over which he himself must later pass. A few principles we picked up here then to lay the groundwork for blessings of letting go in 2 Corinthians uh, 2.5 and following found in some of the Gospels and the other epistles. Number one, God has forgiven you so you should forgive. So you can copy this down if you're a note taker. Find it on the back of your bulletin. Number two, God will forgive you if you forgive. Number three, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. And you will have violated that relationship that has to do with the fellowship with God. So God's forgiven you, so you should forgive. Number two, God will, will forgive you if you do. If you don't forgive, God won't. And so very clearly, you want mercy, give it. You want forgiveness, give it. And forgive like God does. You don't forgive, you don't get forgiveness. And then four, you don't forgive, you don't show mercy, you're going to be chastised. You'll be chastened. It's a great parable from Matthew 18. It's, it's a parable that depicts God and the sinner. Uh, the king in the parable is God, and the man who owes the big debt is the sinner. Now, the whole teachable moment comes when Peter asks Jesus this question in Matthew 18. As Peter comes, and, and no doubt being very uh, confident in his own uh, magnanimous attitude, he says, um, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So this is, uh, you know, something that's been done that's actually a offense. It's gone against someone else, uh, against Peter particularly. And then he says, up to seven times. So, I mean, he can do the same thing over and over to me, and seven times I'll forgive him. Right? That's good. Right, Lord? Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, you've heard this before, I'm sure, but obviously Jesus wasn't expecting Peter to begin to count the times he had to forgive until he got up to 490, and then after that, then what? Because then you're right back in the same point you are here, right? I've done it seven times. Am I I good? Is that the extent of the the mercy I'm going to show and the forgiveness I'm going to show? So obviously that's not the point. The idea was, however many times it takes, the number seven, which is used of completeness many times in Scripture, I think, really just indicates to you get to the point of complete forgiveness. It really didn't have to do with the infraction as much as it had to do with the person who was offended. Till you get to the point where you've actually forgiven. that you really just let it go. See. And after that, no doubt, unexpected statement from the Lord. Peter, I'm sure, thought he was being very generous. Jesus says this in verse 23, For this reason, for what reason? Well, to explain this emphasis on forgiveness, which would have set the bar a lot higher than the high-minded notions of men who are so forgetful and self-appreciating in their common actions with themselves, right? We value ourselves very high and tend to uh, not remember our infractions too much. So uh, again, Peter becomes the scapegoat here for us, but we fit well there. We don't even get to seven, do we? We want to chase it down after one. So Jesus says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, So that's God, who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now this is an unpayable debt. This is uh, now just as a reference. Matthew 20 verse 2 tells us that a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer in the first century. A denarius is a measure of weight, uh, not necessarily a money Actual piece of money, but necessarily a weight of a precious metal this in this case silver it would equal about 0.14 of an ounce a Talent is also a measure of weight. We see that in the scripture as well in this case silver It's the equivalent of 3,000 shekels or 34.3 kilograms or about 75 u.s. pounds Or about 8500 days of labor at a denarius a day, or that's about 23 years of work as a laborer in case you're doing that quick math or you're just a mathematician. So in today's money, if an ounce of silver is worth about 20 bucks, 10,000 talents of silver would be worth about 15 million dollars. So there's the debt in today's vernacular so you can get kind of an idea. So the servant comes, he owes 10,000 talents. So this is an unpayable that is of course a clue that the king here is the Lord and the slave here is the sinner. That's the type of debt we owe before salvation. An unpayable debt, not one that we can ever get on top of. So let that sink in for a minute. because That's super helpful in the whole forgiveness process. You owed an unpayable debt. That's the point of the parable. That's heaven's view of the debt that all sinners owe. You owed it, I owed it, the whole world owes it. But in the parable, Jesus is telling Peter and the disciples this is an incomprehensible debt. This is a massive debt. They could easily do the math in their head and think, oh, my word, fishing, I I could never get on top of this. It wouldn't matter how good the season was. It wouldn't matter how many seasons I could string together. There's no way I'm getting on top of it. He could never repay it. And that's precisely the point. And that's what we read in verse 25. Verse 25 says, but since he did not have the means to repay... His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. The debt was too big to be repaid, but if all these people were sold into slavery and all his things were sold, at least the king could recoup something. That's the whole idea. And as a footnote, to accrue this kind of debt, the man had obviously defrauded him. Maybe he was a slave who was a tax collector, perhaps he was he had an authority over a large amount of, of the treasury or a vast amount of land or goods or or somehow he had lost all of it, or made bad decisions, or defrauded the king, or whatever. Any of those ways, the debt is there. So the king probably says, you know, if I can't get what he owes, I'll get what I can get by selling him and uh, all of his belongings and his family into slavery. And Jesus is making the heavenly point with an earthly illustration, because this is where this is headed. So verse 26 says, so the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying... Um, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. And the Lord uh, of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's God and the sinner. So when the sinner comes before God, he's convicted about his unpayable debt. He's caught. He's convicted of his sin. He knows there's a debt. He wants to make the debt right. And God tells him the obvious, you have no means to repay me. Psalm says the, the ransom of a soul is, is expensive and who can, who can afford it? No one can. That's the whole point. It's costly. You're going to be sent to hell. So you can then pay what you can pay, even though you'll never pay me what you owe me. And again, as a footnote, the parable illustrates hell in some respects. It's, it's spending forever paying what you can pay, but it will never pay what you really owe. Understand? That, that's the debt of affronting a God so greatly. Uh, the one who has rejected his son's payment on their behalf that's the debt. You can never pay that debt back, but you'll be spending eternity paying what you can pay, even though it's not what you actually owe. But this king is compassionate. And when he sees the man's willingness, he forgives the debt. And those points are very important for Peter and the disciples because they're understanding what it means seven or 70 times seven. Uh, This is an unpayable debt and it's forgiven. So, These points are very important for Peter and them to understand the enormity of the debt owed by every man and the compassion of the Lord. But here comes the main point, verse 28. But the slave went out. Now this is the slave that had just been forgiven and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. And that's a little over three months wages for a a laborer. So that's not a major debt. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. And, of course, the people listening to Jesus tell the story at this point are completely outraged. And this is a huge effrontery. And they're being sucked, no doubt, into the story because it's engaging. And they've probably lost sight temporarily of the point Jesus is making here, which is related to Peter's question about how many times should I forgive seven times. And the Lord says, no, not seven times, seven times 70. And they're just kind of pulled into this whole Dude, he got it forgiven 10,000 talents, and he turns around and tries to extract 100 denarii from someone right after he met with a king who forgave him. And, you know, so they're, they're, they're missing the, probably missing it temporarily, but Jesus is going to bring it right back here in a second. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll repay you. Verse 30, but he was unwilling, and he went, and he threw him in prison until he should pay back all that was owed. And here's the deal. I think it's important to re- point out that this second slave didn't come seeking forgiveness. Okay, he wasn't coming and saying, forgive me the debt. He had full intention to pay, and it was a payable debt. He wasn't asking for mercy. Likely, he didn't know that this first slave wanted everything back right now. It's an offense, perhaps, if you, if you connect it to an offense. It's an offense done to you, and the other person doesn't even know that they did it. Okay. It just seems so absurd, right? I mean, when you read it, it's just, it's embarrassingly absurd and it's outrageous. And at this point, Peter and his disciples, and you and I know where he's going to go with all of this, right? And that's kind of embarrassing for us, isn't it? This is a hard passage. Here's someone who'd been forgiven a massive debt, who turned around and won't forgive someone, a small debt. Where do we find such people as that? Well, they're more abundant than we thought, aren't they? And even Peter, who was willing to forgive seven times and thought he was being so magnanimous, is getting a tight collar at this point. All right, so no sense putting it off. Let's finish the passage, verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Straight to the king. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, so speaking of the first slave, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And You see, it's the same thing we saw earlier. God has forgiven you so you should forgive. God has forgiven you an unpayable debt, and no one has an unpayable debt to you. God will forgive you if you forgive. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Now let's look at the last two verses. Verse 34, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then listen to Jesus' words in verse 35, and you're already reading them. "My heavenly Father," so now Jesus disengages from the heavenly story to prove a, uh, uh, the earthly story to prove a heavenly point, and he says, "My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You don't forgive, you don't show mercy, you'll be chastened." It's precisely what we saw in the five verses we looked at when we were first started, in one package. You want mercy from God? Show mercy. You want forgiveness from the Lord? You give forgiveness. And if you don't, then don't expect it. And that's quite a story, isn't it? And that parable is very hard to hear. And it's so hard to hear that you can look and you can find people who write in commentaries who think that Jesus' is teaching here couldn't possibly apply to believers, And if this was isolated by itself, and you had no other scriptural references to point to, perhaps you could make some tentative case to that end. But think about it. How could it not be speaking to believers? Who's the audience? Peter and the disciples. And the parable jumped off Peter's question about how many times he needed to forgive, and what was the identity of the first slave? That's a forgiven man. God had already forgiven him. He's a child of God, right? An unpayable debt and he's been forgiven completely. The debt is completely canceled. And Mark, this beloved, verse 35 says that it is imperative that we forgive to avoid God's harshness. So after he disengages from the story, he says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you. And who's the audience? It's his disciples, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. so. To avoid God's harshness, unbelievers can't avoid God's harshness by being unforgiving. See, they have to forgive. Otherwise, they're on their way to pay what they can never pay. And see, here's the deal. You know, you have to be forgiven in order to... Unbelievers can't avoid God's harshness by being forgiving. Okay, that's my point. So it can't be an unbeliever that we're talking about here. Because just being forgiven is not sufficient to be saved, is it? No. So we can't be, it can't be unredeemed people who are the target here, because otherwise, if you're forgiven, God forgives you. And that has nothing to do with the ultimate forgiveness that comes uh, by confession of Christ as your Savior. So that the target, obviously, <coughs> believers are required to forgive from the heart. That's from the innermost part, no false forgiveness, where you still hang on to your grievance. That's what it means. My Heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother, from your heart see so again we see in the most stark and unadorned manner that god will sometimes deal very harshly with his children who have an unforgiving heart towards another person thomas Watson, 17th century uh, uh puritan preacher wrote this interesting statement he said this we need not climb up into heaven to see whether our sins are forgiven let us look into our hearts and see if we can forgive others if we can, we need not doubt that God has forgiven us. That's pretty cool. If we understand the whole forgiveness, fellowship forgiveness thing, then as we confess our sins, we don't have to worry that those fellowship, those fellowship impediments are being forgiven and washed constantly because if we're doing it to other people, it's certainly happening for us. And again, we just confirm what we know about these passages that in that you're reflecting God's attributes most clearly when you forgive. And the bigger the debt, the more clearly you're looking like the Lord. And more than that, such forgiveness should come easy because why? Because you've already been forgiven. See, the whole outrage of the story was, and here's this slave who's been forgiven an unpayable debt, turns around and chokes his other slave and says, pay what you owe me. And, of course, Peter and those that are just so outraged and incensed, how could somebody do it? And yet, that's precisely what Peter was doing when he came to Jesus and asked, how long, can I, how long do I have to say you're forgiven before I can say forget it? Forgiveness should come easy because we've been forgiven. And there are a great many blessings connected to this act of forgiving that we're going to see in our passage. See A lot of release and things that happen that are just marvelous. But what we can see right now in our actions is, is this mentality of our culture. It doesn't put us in very good company, see. It puts us in the company of the slave who was forgiven and then turns around and demands repayment. That's not a very nice company, is it? That you don't think you need to forgive, especially if you feel you are denied your due. Or you feel like you have the right to retaliate if someone does something wrong to you or it was so bad that, listen, there's no way I'm forgetting that. Or you find yourself holding on to offenses, legitimate offenses. I'm not talking about things that aren't offenses. I'm talking about you were legitimately offended by someone and maybe it was intentional. could be unintentional. Maybe it was intentional. You were the wronged party and you're holding Mm -hmm. on to that. And all of those, of course, are dealt with in, in the previous passage. But, uh, you know, this is where you may be. And, and those hard attitudes, apart from creating an environment where you, you may be chastened by the Lord, it'll also produce some things in your life that you won't want. And number one, it's going to keep you chained to your past. It'll keep you chained to your past. As long as you hold on to some offenses and refuse to forgive, you're held a prisoner. And I think we all have related to that in some respects, don't we? Unforgiveness keeps the pain alive. It keeps the sore open. Unforgiveness never lets the wound heal. And you'll go through your life reminding yourself of what was done to you, and so you continue to chafe that open wound and that open sore. And Scripture tells us what happens when you keep doing that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, it says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Keep the pain stirred up, see, And you grow and you nourish and you fertilize a root that's called bitterness. And it's a real big problem in marriages and in relationships and in families and children and fellowships and ministries. Unforgiveness, dwelling on offenses, remembering conversations, that's its own whip. And a person goes on offending you for the rest of your life because you're letting them do that because you won't forgive. See, it's not a virtue. Holding on to something and being able to give that person a piece of your mind, that's not a godly virtue, okay? Self-talk on your way home about what you would say to that person if you had them there in front of you is not a godly virtue. Going through life accumulating bad feelings, Hebrews says that many may be defiled. Think of what that produces in your home, and you can duplicate yourself in your children. And it robs you of your joy and your health. There's only one person chained in the prison of the past. And guess who it is? It's you. But conversely, forgiveness opens the door and lets the prisoner out. That prisoner's you. Apart from everything we just said, apart from give forgiveness and you'll get it, God will forgive you if you ask him if you give it. And if you don't give it, you're not getting it. And if you don't give it, you're going to be chastened by the Lord. See, apart from all of that, The reality of your life, see, is this root of bitterness when you don't forgive. But when you forgive, it destroys the root of bitterness. It sets you free, see. It'll change your character, too. It'll make you become sarcastic. Did you know that's not a virtue either? Okay? Ability to be sarcastic is not a godly virtue. You don't find it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, sarcasm. In fact, and you—I mean in, in a real way, perhaps you know this about yourself and you may know this about other people. Some of the most sarcastic people I know are some of the most unforgiving people that I know. And they can bring up offenses that their husband did to them years in the past. It's almost a one for one. You hold on to unforgiveness, you become a super sarcastic person. It'll make you caustic, easily angered, gives you a nasty disposition. Again, you reproduce this in your family. If you need a biblical example, think about King Saul, irritated by the memory of something, you know, and continuing to dwell on it and annoyed that David was picked and not forgiving and continuing and changing his character, becoming more and more severe. I mean, this, you know, you develop this distorted view of life, just like Saul did. you know, you you make yourself out to be self-righteous and you're very sulky. And you've literally poisoned your whole existence, and, and even casual conversations become a stage for gossip and slander and, and against the offender, see? And it's said in a joke and whatever, you know, and, and they did this, and you know how they always do that, that kind of thing. But see, it just reveals what's going on actually inside, apart from all the other things that you're not giving forgiveness from the Lord, because you're not forgiving and you're still in that daily defilement of your sins, and you're not getting that... You're not getting that washing going on because you're not extending it, see? And you're placing yourself in a position where the Lord will have to chasten you and you'll suffer as a, as a wrongdoer, see? And so the flesh becomes nourished and the bitterness is there and that last remnant of the old self gains control. And so we've seen this happen, it seems, very often, beloved, and just as a side note, in marriages. Two believers married to each other uh, and should never be divorced. That's what the Bible says. Uh, marriage is permanent. There's only one reason for divorce, and even that, specific circumstances surrounding it, surrounding it. They should never be separated, 1 Corinthians 7 says. Also remain separate or be rejoined to each other. They should be enjoying fullness of life. That's God's design, see. Now listen, when I, when I walked down the aisle, I married a sinner. She's not here, so... Don't say that, I said that. (laughs) But what's unbelievable is she did too. Imagine that. And in light of that, it's absolutely impossible for us not to offend each other. We're both sinners, and we offend each other. Okay? But where there's forgiveness, and that's operating as it's supposed to, an offense is a moment in time that comes and goes. And we say this in marriage counseling all the time, you, you know, premarital counseling, your marriage is a garden and you should be in there weeding it all the time. There's no time where you should not be paying attention to what's going on there. Taking things out that shouldn't be there and making sure you're keeping short accounts. And and you're, that moment of offense is just a moment, okay? It's not now a, what's it called on a computer when you set a date in the past where you can go back and reset everything? Thank you, it's not a restore point for an argument. Oh, yeah, what about July the 10th, 1998, when you said that very same thing? That's, that's completely opposite of the whole point of the parable, everything we looked at in the epistles before, Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. Listen, you know, we, we find ourselves justifying where we are because of all the past offenses, which we should never have held on to to begin with. If we are redeemed, we've been forgiven and a payable debt, right? So we don't live there, but we find we s- ourselves living there. And so these two people—they may be married for a long time. And and uh, instead of being spirit controlled, which is the main emphasis in premarital counseling, above all the communication, you know, keys and all that stuff. If if you've been with me in premarital, you know that I've said being in the word every single day so that you can be spirit controlled is the best way that you can have a marvelous marriage because both of you are desiring to please the Lord in how you cheat each other. And if that's the standard, then it becomes very easy to interact with the other person. Much easier to just forgive and let go. Much, for, much easier to just forget the stuff that happened in the past. You, don't, you can't even recall the exact circumstances because you're not thinking about it anymore. See, this is how that's supposed to go. And so those offenses are just for a moment. But what happens in these marriages is that there's this no forgiveness and it's this accumulated bitterness and it closes off affection and kindness and it destroys the relationship. And the next thing you know, you know, it's so often with couples today married for years, they file for divorce as a result of accumulated anger and bitterness over a long period of time, which fertilized and cultivated, uh, all of that root. See, and then they just get to the point, you know, 30 years in or whatever, 25 years in, it's like, I don't want anything to do with this person. I'm just I'm done. And it's just connected to all of that, see. You know, and we'll look at a few uh, more just quickly because you know we'll see these from the positive perspective in our passage in Second Corinthians 2, but unforgiveness gives Satan an open door. It gives Satan an open door. So this is not sounding too too sporty, huh? It'll it'll keep you chained to your past, it changes your character. Unforgiveness gives Satan an open door. Catch this. Unforgiveness throws out the welcome mat and invites the demons in. I mean, that's precisely what Ephesians 4.26 says. Where you have unresolved in your own heart bitterness and anger. Remember, you're just you're the only one in prison here, okay? Where you have an unforgiving spirit, where you have no mercy to show to anybody. You've given the place to to the devil. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin and don't let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27, and don't give the devil an opportunity. And the idea here is if you go to bed at night, this is how practical the instruction is. If you go to bed at night and you're not fully forgiven so that your anger and your bitterness are gone, you've given Satan the opportunity. Actually the Greek word is place. You've given Satan a place. Do you want to give that? Would you like for Satan to have a place in your own private life? Because if you don't forgive, that's what you get. You get Satan gets a place. You set him a welcome place. James 1.19 follows that up. It says this, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. See, unresolved, unforgiven anger certainly doesn't achieve God's righteousness. It rolls out the welcome mat for the evil one. And our current passage from 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, which we'll be, get to in just a couple weeks, tells us this. So that no advantage, so five times in seven verses, forgive, forgive, forgive. And he says this, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. Again, exactly the same idea. Paul says, I'll forgive and you should forgive because we know what happens when we don't. And here's one of the blessings of letting go is that there's no advantage, no opportunity given to Satan to destroy fellowships and destroy ministries and to destroy relationships and to destroy marriages, see. And again, what's the standard? The gold standard is you forgive just as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. And how often has he forgiven you? all day every day and what's the unpayable that he's forgiven you of all your sin and he counts it against you no more and he doesn't impute it against you anymore and he never thinks about it again see paul says we know how he works. And, and it could be knowing our culture of unforgiveness and how the culture sometimes salts the church. We may say, you know, that's a lot of ground Satan gains in our lives and our ministries is directly related to unforgiveness. Let me say it again. You know, if we understand that, and we understand how the culture salts the church, I think it's safe to say that most of the ground Satan gains in our life is directly connected to unforgiveness. Would you say that? I would say that. I think that's a very fair statement for the church and for personal relationships. Most of the ground gained by Satan is gained in unforgiveness, see? And there's denominations so worried about casting out Satan here and blocking Satan there and putting a hedge around it to get, get rid of Satan. Listen, you roll out the welcome mat if you do something as simple as not forgive a payable debt when you've been forgiven an unpayable one. You roll it out for him and you set him a place. Forget about barring Satan and what? You're inviting them in. Let's look at that. See, and so on the other side, I think you could evict a lot of demon trespassers by acts of genuine forgiveness. Not only are you letting yourself out of a prison you put yourself in, you're evicting a lot of demon trespassers along the way, both in the church and in your own family. I look. I mean, everybody's like, you know, I want to, I want to know what the Bible says about direct blessings from the Lord. What can I do to get a direct blessing? Well, there's one. That's pretty clear, right? And finally, unforgiveness obviously interferes with your communion with God. And this is just a, a continually repeated pattern here that we've seen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15 If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So you're losing all that communion and fellowship that you'd like to have. Catch this. I'm not right with you, I'm not right with Him. On a very basic level, that's. The whole First Corinthians 11 passage has to deal with that. Did you know that? Taking, taking the, the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner is connected to how they were treating each other. And the selfishness and the self-centeredness and narcissism that was part of that church and that part of the worship that would go on and everybody talking different times and at the same time and wanting to do whatever they want to do and say I've got something to say and you need you know and I I want to say it and I'm going to speak in tongues if I want and I'm just whole this whole this whole mess that was part of the church and then I'm going to go to the fellowship dinner and I'm bringing my own stuff and I'm not sharing it with anybody and I'm just going to eat with people just like me and the whole thing was all about me 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 see. And so Paul says and then you come to the. You come to communion and you think somehow you're in fellowship with the Lord. You're not in fellowship with each other. You're not right with each other. You're not right with Him. See, Colossians three nineteen: husbands love your wives; do not be embittered against them. So I'll pick on men just for a second, as, and because you know next Sunday is Mother's Day, so we're gonna pick on mops. Okay, so just throw in you know fair play. Husbands love your wives; don't be embittered against them. You know, First Peter uh, three seven and not, seven through nine: husbands love your wife. and don't hold a bitter, a bitter attitude towards your wife. It's in the imperative. It's not a grand suggestion. Well, you don't know what kind of person she is. You know the passage in Proverbs, you know, like dripping from a roof, you know, a wife Yeah, I know it. But I bet you contribute. Don't you? Don't be embittered against them. First Peter 3, 7. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, in, in what same way? The way the Lord deals with you. That, that was the previous passage. How does the Lord deal with you? In the same way you, you deal with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Mark this, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Looks like that's a fellowship problem, isn't it? When you're not dealing with your wife in an understanding way as with someone weaker, your prayers are hindered. You think you're talking to the Lord and you're not. You're talking to the ceiling. And then he says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You're going to inherit one, and so you should be giving one. So it just adds another component. Okay? And even if it's not reciprocated, we say this in in marriage counseling all the time, even if it's not reciprocated, even if the forgiveness that you're giving and the unconditional love that you're giving isn't reciprocated back, you are still in the direct line of blessing from the Lord. Why? Because you're doing exactly what the Lord wanted you to do. Precisely as he's asked. Really in some of the same types of contexts where it's difficult to do it and you're extending it to someone who's not very nice. You see? You see? Why would, I, why would I sentence myself to be in any other place than the place of the maximum blessing from the Lord, see? And this is, this is just a place where you're putting yourself by your own self-will, see? What kind of foolishness is that? What benefit is it to cut off the benefits and full rich fellowship that God desires with you along with the constant washing from the defilement of the world that he gives to you if you give forgiveness to someone else, see? So how do I avoid that. That doesn't sound very nice. Well, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Colossians 3.13, bear with one another, forgive one another, whatever, whoever has a complaint against anyone just takes in a very broad bunch of categories. Whatever it is, however it came about, whatever offense you think it is, however you took it, however they intended it, whatever, however, it fi- however it finally washed out, Okay. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, takes in everybody, okay? Bear with them, forgive them, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Ephesians 4.32, how do I do it? Be kind to one another. This is an act of volition. See, when we have uh, marriages that come in, they're having trouble. You know, there's not like, five easy steps to a great marriage. Read this book and everything will be hunky-dory. No, you know, we get in this position with one another because we move away from fellowship and understanding what the lord is saying to us and not doing it and so when couples come in they get homework sometimes very basic okay this is the passage we're going to look at uh, this is what it's going to look like for you i'd like you to and then i put it in lines and i say okay how can i do this to my spouse in this next week before we meet again and so i'm going to use this verse i'm going to put it into practice i'm going to do these three things i got four or five sheets that they can take home over time where they can do this homework and when you bring yourself in line with what the Word of God says, it's amazing how the relationship itself begins to put on flesh because sometimes they come in and the couples have stripped each other off of every flesh. I mean, it's just emaciated. There's no reserve there anymore. I mean, they've picked each other to death and now, now it's time to put, make some deposits, right? But it's not, it's not some special knowledge, right? It's not some five points to a better marriage or whatever, go on a vacation and, and talk. You know, if you don't like each other, Don't go on a vacation, okay? That's going to be miserable. Let's get some stuff straight before you depart. It'll be a lot more fun when you're out. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you, see? We do it in the proper response of thankfulness to the king who's forgiven us an unpayable debt, see? And and we're going to deal with with, uh, one of those places in our passage and there are many word pictures in Scripture about forgiveness, and, and, they're, and they're there to help us grasp, I think, something about the nature of forgiveness. Here's it, here it is, okay? Because I think people, even if they embrace forgiveness, they kind of self-define it. Well, I'll forgive you, but I'm never going to forget it. You know, that kind of thing. What? Write in large letters across the bill, nothing owed. I think we can make that connection, can't we? Whatever was against or whatever we'd done against the Lord was written on a bill and nailed to the cross, according to Colossians, and canceled. It's to be forgotten and never sought to be remembered again. I have forgotten your sins. It's amazing the Lord can be the creator of all the universe, omnipotent, omniscient, and say, I remember your sins no more. It's to send the offense into the wilderness, never to be found again. That's forgiveness. You don't see it. You don't hear it. It's gone forever. It's to bundle up all the trash and all the filth in the house and sweep it up and leave it clean. It's to grant full pardon to a condemned criminal. It's to set off in opposite directions on a compass and never look back. The offense and you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sin from you. It's to drop an anchor into the Marianas Trench and let go of the rope. And the Marianas Trench came to my mind because one of my sons, we were talking about it the other day. I just thought, you know, the Lord says that I send your sins to the bottom of the sea. And I thought, you know, it's a bad thing when you're out boating and you throw your anchor in. You're not holding on to the end of the rope. Anybody ever done that? I've done that. Unfortunately, more than once. And you see the end of the rope go over. It's like, ah! Well, that's too late now. Those are the pictures, see. So, when we think about forgiveness, let's think about it in the correct context, okay? We know that we should because the Lord has forgiven us. We know that it should be easy because of all that we've forgiven. We understand it. We get it from the Lord when we give it, and we understand that if we don't give it, we don't get it, okay? And we understand the Lord can deal very harshly with believers who won't forgive and does do that regularly. Some are weak, sick, and some sleep. But apart from all of that, you know, we can understand all of that, and then we can understand this. It looks like this, okay? Forgiveness looks like this. When you let go, it's gone. When the king forgave the unpayable debt, it was canceled. There was no longer anything owed, see? This matter of forgiveness is very important. It's right at the foundation of spiritual health, beloved. We can't say, we can't say in one moment, I want to do everything for the glory of Christ, but I don't think I'm going to forgive you. You know, what you have to say is, I'm not going to forgive you. So, Christ, I'm not really interested in your glory. See, I'm interested in my vengeance. I'm interested in my opinion. I'm interested in serving me. See, I'm interested in hanging on to an offense because it was a legitimate offense and they really hurt me. See, and then we find ourselves in really bad company. See, forgiveness is this, beloved it, it is a declaration of love that states. I don't hold any resentment against you. I don't hold any odium, no acrimony against you. And as a byproduct of it, I won't bring up the offense to you. If you understand forgiveness in the scripture, I won't bring up the offense to anybody else. I won't bring it up and dwell on it myself. And I'm going to stop thinking about it right now. bow me be dismissed in prayer, if you would, with me, beloved. Father, we thank you for a time where we can begin to lay the groundwork of uh, this marvelous teaching of forgiveness, which is really at the heart of spirituality. It's really at the heart of fellowship with you. We come to you and receive full forgiveness of every debt owed. What a marvelous thought that is, that we can walk up to you and admit that we are a sinner, confess those sins to you, own all of them, know that it's all true against us, And ask for your forgiveness and genuineness of heart, believing that you will forgive, and you will. We love that part of our relationship with you. We love the unconditional love and forgiveness we get. And Lord, I pray then we'll connect all of this together in how we respond to one another. As convicting as it was to my own heart today, Lord, I know as you read your word, no matter what we've done and how we've attempted to be forgiving, it's still a very short trip to holding on to things. So, Lord, continue to remind us of the forgiveness we owe to all. Help us to do it unconditionally. Help us to do it uh, with joy, knowing that we really look like you when we do it. And then help us to do it like your word describes it at the bottom of the sea, at the opposite ends of the compass. To send it into the wilderness to not talk about it anymore to not hold any acrimony to not repeat the offense to anybody else to not talk about it to myself to stop thinking about it right now and lord we have that ability because you've given us first of all the command to do it and the ability to forgive and you've given us the example of what it looks like so help us to be those kinds of people father it always is that way. When we see your word, we want to do know what it says, what it means by what it says. Now, how does it apply? It's not a hard connection. I pray that we'll do it every day. Start doing it now. Maybe go back and, and take care of some things that have dug in as a parasite on our own soul. Put us in a place where we can be blessed by you, encouraged, lifted up, that we don't, that we don't, uh, as all the witnesses in heaven look at us, become incensed that we're so unforgiving when we've been given such an un- we've been forgiven such an unpayable debt so lord we thank you for that you know our own hearts i pray you do your work in each of us we pray this in the name of your son jesus and all god's people said amen